6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 24 through 27. And every detail of the book of Joshua is fascinatingly an anticipation of the book of Revelation. How his enemies align themselves under a leader called Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, and how they're defeated by signs in the sun and the moon in the battle of Beth Horon and so forth. And how the kings, when they're defeated, hide in caves and so forth. Joshua's going into the land. Three nations have already been taken care of. Seven are left. Seven nations are in the land. Interesting. Another Yehoshua is going to dispossess the land of the usurpers, except he's not talking about a parcel of ground we call Palestine. He's talking about the entire planet Earth. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. But again, in verse 23, the moon shall be confounded in the sun of shame, analogous, if you will, to the battle of Beth Horon, where the sun was said, he said, be thou silent, and the moon in the, in the valley of Agilon. Joshua 10, for those of you who may want to review that. Now, it's interesting. All this is going on, this heavy, apocalyptic, wild stuff, right? When does it happen? When the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Those aren't figures of speech. They're not allegorical. They're actual geographic places. You can go there, touch, feel, and see. And grab a pocket full of dirt and bring it home in a bottle. It's that ground, Mount Zion. Ground just a little to the west of uh, Taropian Valley. As the city of David outgrew that and went down that Taropian Valley, up the hill, that was Mount Zion. Generically speaking, a synonym for Jerusalem in general, but it's a very specific mountain, the Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem, no ambiguity about Jerusalem. Who's going to reign there? The Lord of hosts. And who is he going to reign before? Who's going to be part of his court? Who will be there? His ancients gloriously. That's interesting. What do you mean his ancients? I believe that tells you about the first resurrection. The book of Revelation clarifies this. Yes, there is a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. And don't be confused by being just. That means justified in Christ. No one will be justified by their own works. Those that are insisting to be judged by their works are in for a shock. Because they will be. <laughs> there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. What Revelation tells us is something that we don't have clear visibility elsewhere. And that is that there's a thousand years between those two resurrections. And also recognize that the first resurrection is not an event, it's a category. It's not a moment alone. Why do I say that? Because who is the first fruits of them that slept? Jesus Christ, when was he res resurrected? 1900 years ago. So whenever the resurrection that we associate with rapture occurs, understand it's a category that embraces Jesus Christ 1900 years ago. So it's a category, not an event. And that helps us understand some of the theology. But the tragedy is that those that are unsaved will also be resurrected and have a destiny, an eternal destiny. There's something intrinsic about all of us, saved or unsaved, that we're eternal. We're all eternal. 
The terrifying thing is your, your eternity will either be in God's presence or hopelessly forever alienated from God's presence. And you and I have no capacity to understand what that means. So I believe Christ speaks in analogies. The lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Not that it, I'm not just saying it isn't a literal lake. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying I believe that's his way to try to communicate to us what this dimensionality that we have that we don't even appreciate here means if we are, in fact, alienated from God. That's what I believe Gehenna is all about. No one will be in hell for their sin. They'll be in hell for rejecting the provision God has made for their sin. Okay, he's going to reign before his ancients gloriously. There is, in that verse, an overtone of a resurrection. The resurrection of the just. We're going to hear more about that before this, these few chapters go by. In fact, we're moving into, coming up against one of my favorite portions of the Bible. Let's move on. Chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name. Thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city a heap, a fortified city, a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be no city. It shall never be rebuilt. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee, and the city of terrible nations shall fear thee. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in its distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, and when the blast of the terrible ones is like a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of aliens as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible one shall be brought low. Now that phrase, of course, Isaiah is using antithetically. You and I are familiar with the biblical use of the term branch, the Hebrew word tzemek. It's interesting to me that there's 20 different words that can mean branch in the Hebrew, but the word tzemek that is used is always used of Messiah, and it's the word tzemek that's the name of the principal star in the constellation Virgo, the virgin, the tzemek, the seed of the corn and the tzemek, the, the branch. Speaking, of course, of the branch, the root of David, it's a messianic term. And we've seen that several places in Isaiah already. We've talked about it. We'll be seeing it again. But here, Isaiah is using it flipped over. The branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. Different guy. Who's this guy? This is obviously Satan's man that we're talking about, the coming world leader. The branch of the terrible ones shall be what? Brought low. Reminds us that in Genesis 3.15, that famous verse that starts all prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah... When God declares war on Satan, he says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And out of that we get the famous title of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. We hear about a lot. Don't forget there's another seed, the seed of Satan. Jesus talks about that in John chapter 8. In his little dialogue with the Pharisees, they called him a bastard. In the politeness of the King James, you may miss that. Let's go for it. Let's go. John 8. I want to highlight this to you so as you read the Gospels, don't let the politeness of the King James hide from you the dynamics of what's really going on. John 8 is one of these fascinating dialogues between Jesus Christ and the religious leadership. It fascinates me that Jesus Christ, every time he encountered a sinner, it was with compassion and forgiveness. Every episode, woman taking adultery or you name it, it evokes in him one of care, compassion, concern, forgiveness. There's one group of people that has just the opposite reaction every time you see it, and that is where he speaks vituperatively, violently, vigorously, and that's against the professional religionists of that day. And, of course, this is one of those exchanges 
and we obviously don't have time to go. We won't divert to go through the whole thing. But when you get to verse 18, he, Jesus says, I am the one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that hath sent me beareth witness of me. And he uses, he makes reference to his Father, Father God. In verse 19, they said unto him, Where is thy Father? So you missed that unless you're watching closely. What they're saying, they're alluding to his apparent illegitimate birth. And by the way, if anyone says there's no evidence for the historicity of Jesus Christ that's wrong, it's in the Talmud. The Talmud refers to him as the illegitimate son of Mary. Interesting. And they said unto him, Where is thy father? And Jesus answered, Do you know neither me nor my father? And he, he takes off here. If you'd known me, you would have known my father. And he goes on. Before he finishes, he tells them, You want to talk about fatherhood? I'll tell you about fatherhood. When he gets to verse 44. He says, Ye are of your father. And he's speaking to the Pharisees. These are the professionals. These are the ones that made a career of trying to keep the law. Ye are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father he ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh of a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. And he keeps, he, he keeps going at it. You know, they, of course, say he has a demon and all this. He keeps at it. He says, verse 56, is your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was, and was glad. And the Jews said unto him, you're not even 50 years old. How can you see Abraham? He says, verily, verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. You and I miss what that says. They didn't. They took up stones to cast at him. Why? Because he was claiming to be the voice in the burning bush. And of course, he slips out. Interesting. Gets kind of aggressive. I love that. That's kind of fun. I've forgotten how I got this far afield. <laughs> I think I deviated once before. We read down verse 5, the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. That, of course, echoes Revelation 19, when the branch of the terrible ones will indeed be brought very low by none other than Jesus Christ himself. Verse 6, and in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, a fat things full of marrow of, on, of wines on lees, well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. The veil that is spread over all nations. We know about the veil that's over Israel. Paul tells us about that. They're blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Romans 11.25. What's interesting is here and there we're beginning to see that veil lifted. I think it's kind of exciting. But I think the veil will be formally lifted when the church is out of here. When is the church out of here? When it's complete. And God will once again deal with the planet Earth through Israel. Through the 144,000 and all of that. That Revelation 7 and 14 detail for us. Back to Isaiah verse 8, he shall swallow up death in victory. Oh, what a fascinating phrase. I thought Paul invented that in 1 Corinthians 15. No, he was drawing upon Isaiah. Remember? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, which climaxes at the end of it, of course, in the rapture. But he, in verses 54 and 55, he mentions about death and victory, grave words I sting, and so forth. Quoting from Isaiah. You know, uh, 25, 8. He will swallow up death and victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. I thought that was John in the book of Revelation. Yes, but he's drawing from where? From Isaiah. There's at least 357 direct quotes in Revelation from the Old Testament. And if it sounds strange to us in Revelation, it's only because we haven't mastered the Old Testament. 
God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Praise God, huh? For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him, even as straw is trampled down for the dunghill. And of course, Moab is a literal place, but it also sometimes is used figuratively to refer to those that are false profession. And you can do a study of Edom and Moab, Ammon. Those are all worthwhile doing. Start from where they actually started in Genesis. Track their history and their relationship with Israel. And you'll get a flavor not only of their future, but also of how they're used idiomatically in the Scripture. Verse 11, And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he, he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands in the fortress of the high fort of thy wall shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground even to the dust. The Apocalypse in Isaiah continues, chapter 26, verse 1. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nature that keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. That sound familiar to you? That's because Paul quotes it in Philippians 4 verses 5 and 6. Trust ye the Lord forever for in the Lord God is everlasting strength. For he bringeth down those who dwell on high. The lofty city layeth low. He layeth it low even to the ground. He bringeth it even to the dust. The foot shall tread it down. Even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. Thou, most upright, dost weigh the path of the just. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. One small footnote. With my spirit within me, I will seek the early. I'm intrigued as I read the scripture how the precious time with the Lord is first thing in the morning. When do sheep feed? First thing in the morning. This is a blow for me because when I wake up, that's my freshest time. I'm one of these guys, a morning person. I usually wake up very early and I'm just full of ideas and that's my fresh time. A dear friend of mine pointed that out to me. I thought, gee, that's interesting. What I need to give to the Lord is my best time. Not the leftovers at the end of the day when I'm tired, so I'll do my little five-minute reading. No, 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 no. First thing in the morning, feed. Give the best time of your day to God. Seek the early. Watch for it. You'll notice the scripture emphasized that. I don't want to get on a legal trip. I'm just suggesting that if you're going to give the Lord some time, give him your best, whatever that is. Okay, verse 10. Let favor be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the line of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see. But they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemy shall devour them. Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us. For thou also hast wrought all our works in us. Now verse 13 tells the tale. O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us. But by thee only will we make mention of thy name. That's something we need to remember. 
It's easy to forget. When you see pain, suffering, disease, injustice, all those things that grieve your soul, remember who the God of this world is. The God of this world, who's that a title of? Satan. Yes, a usurper. And yes, the world ultimately, in a final sense, is the Lord's. But there's a usurper in control at the moment. Permissively in control, I understand, but still, let's not lose sight of the fact that we have a hostile adversary who's got control of the strings right now. If you don't believe that, look at the media. <laughs> look, at the, look around, and it's getting worse. Lord God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us. And by the way, when we speak of Satan so glibly, we're not talking about a singular person. Yes, he's in charge. He has an organization. He has a large, powerful organization. Anyone that does not believe in Satan should try opposing him for a while. I think Spurgeon made that crack, and I think it's eloquent. People come up to me, gee, Chuck, I appreciate your ministry. What can we do for you? Let me tell you what you can do for me. Pray. You got a minister or a ministry that you respond to that you like? The most powerful thing you can do is pray for it. That's more important than anything else you can do. You can give money, time, all that. That's great. The most powerful thing you can do is pray for it. You're impressed with a particular tape ministry? Pray for them. You're impressed with a particular speaker here on the radio or on tape or whatever? Pray for him. If he's responding to you, then the God is using him. If God is using him, he's got opposition. If he's got opposition, he needs your prayer. You want to do something that God will honor? Pray. Jude and Peter say, contend for the faith. What do you mean contend for the faith? Go buy a gun and go after it? What do you mean contend for the faith? How do you contend for the faith? Well, lots of ways. But the most powerful thing you can do is pray for it. Regularly. I have a friend that has one of these, he buys himself a watch that has, a, has a, an alarm in it. And he sets the alarm so it rings every hour. And every hour it rings, he prays for me. I just found that out. Blew me away. Just a few minutes, you know, holds me up. And he has, he has not just me alone. He has a little list of burdens before the throne of grace. I haven't found out about it because he happened to share. Yeah, that, that's what we pray. He went off while we were talking. Oh, that's time. What time? Time to pray. Interesting. Take prayer seriously. Every man of God who was at all used by the Lord was a man of prayer. The libraries are full of examples. All the greats of history were men of prayer. Sounds corny. Sounds simple. That's the insidious part of it. It's simple. And yet it isn't. Real, real prayer. Did I get off the subject again? Not really. No, no. When you're talking about other lords beside thee of a dominion over us, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6. There's more to it than that, but that's the heavy artillery. Prayer. By thee only will we make mention of thy name. Boy, there's a lot of theology there. There have been cases where someone's demon-possessed, and you can tell because they are incapable of pronouncing the name Jesus Christ. And boy, that's spooky. Verse 14, They are dead, they shall not live. They are diseased, they shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, we're moving into my fun part here. 
Pay attention. Verse 16. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. As a woman with child who draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. It interests me how frequently the idiom of a woman in travail is used of end-time prophecy. If you study the word travail, many times it is literally speaking of a woman in travel in the Bible. But there are many times also it's used idiomatically, poetically, of the end times. Jesus Christ himself, when he gave his confidential briefing to his four inside disciples, he mentioned that all the, he mentioned some non-signs and then some signs. Then he said, all these are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows is actually the Greek birth pangs. And the, the idiom of birth pangs is a frequent phrase used by the prophets. Isaiah is frequently, Jeremiah does, Ezekiel, so on. A woman with, as, as a woman with child, pains to be delivered. That's the way it's going to happen, little by little and faster and faster. Also got a recent discussion about the book of Revelation. Twice in the book of Revelation it uses, these things must shortly come to pass. You and I, when we hear that in the English, it sounds like shortly, very near it shall come to pass. And we wonder, gee, John wrote a long time ago, what's he talking about? The word in the Greek is entaxi. It's the word from which we get the word tachometer. What it says is when these things start to happen, they happen rapidly. By the way, have you noticed that? Have you noticed things are kind of happening rapidly? Berlin Wall came down. The experts that have been working on it for 40 years were shocked. Look at the Soviet Union. I mean, unbelievable. And what's interesting, you know, it may be catch you and I by surprise. I'll tell you what disturbs you. When you talk to the experts, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have lunch with him and chat about it, you find out he's surprised too. Oh, really? That makes me a little nervous. When you got your friends in Langley scratching their head and saying, wow, we didn't expect that. That makes you a little uncomfortable. You guys are supposed to know. <laughs> That's the other side of the coin, too, of course. It's been fashionable for a decade to piddle on the pant legs of the intelligence community. <laughs> and then when you need them and they don't have a budget, you get a little shook, you know. Somehow our media should make up their mind, you know. But anyway... I'm going to hear about that, I guess. <laughs> Verse 18, we have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the earth fallen. And from verse 19, fasten your seatbelt, I think this is one of the most interesting passages in the Old Testament for you and I. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. That's pretty interesting. Isaiah knew of the resurrection. He also knew he would not live to see the rapture. See? Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So far, no problem. It's an eloquent, articulate, specific, expressive discussion of the first resurrection. But let's go on. Verse 20 and 21, I think, are great fun. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. 
For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Interesting, interesting passage. And the more you study it, the more provocative it becomes. The word come, I believe, links to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The book of Revelation is divided into three sections according to John's 19th verse of the first chapter. He is instructed to write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be metatauta after these things. What things has he seen? Chapter 1, the vision of Christ, in which 24 titles are introduced that become the links, the identity links through the rest of the book. No problem. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, those seven churches that existed at that time. Jesus Christ dictated seven letters to seven churches comprising in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Those seven letters, those two chapters, are probably the most important chapters of the entire book. Everybody rushes through and gets to chapter 6 on, boys, and that excited. No, 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 wait, time out, guys. The rest of it, you're going to see from the mezzanine. You're a spectator. Chapter 2 and 3 affects you and I. Mystical, mystical verses, every verse, every detail in those two chapters are subtle, sophisticated, and highly, tightly organized. Seven letters, seven churches. Study them carefully. They affect every one of us. Personally, collectively, and in, the, in, in time. But after the churches, it says, write the things which shall be meditata after these things. And the first thing is come. John is told, we're caught up into heaven. And idiomatically, he's transported through time. He's given a vision of what's going to happen at least you know 2,000 years after he wrote it. And that's what Revelation chapter 4 through 19 is all about. The expansion of the 70th week of Daniel. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. What do you mean, thy chambers? The answer to that is in John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Wow. Where are we going to be when all this happens? With him. And we have our own mansions, our own chambers. Interesting idea, isn't it? Isaiah says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee, and hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment. Now, just a short period of time. How long do you hide? Until the indignation is past. The word indignation refers to God's wrath, his judgment of sin. You should praise God that he hasn't issued his wrath yet. Because when he starts, he finishes. He does the whole job. It wouldn't be just to judge part of it, not the other. If he's going to judge, he's going to judge it all. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.